Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 27. stand as uh, read the word together. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we come to your word, and it's, it's where we should be. We've entrusted Miss Virginia into your hand, the hand of those whose uh, gifts and expertise lie in the area that she needs. We come to your word now, Lord, and we find uh, your truth here. We find the things that order our lives and, and draw us unto yourself, and we need to walk in the ways of the things of the Spirit and fill our minds with your word, that we might worship you in truth. So we ask that our eyes would be open to the things of your word, uh, of our hearts uh, melted and melded to your will. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the scene of the cross where Jesus is giving up his life uh, for, for our sins for those who belong to him, verse 50 of Matthew chapter 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Remember, they did not take his life from him. He laid it down. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. This is part of the series, if you remember, on those passages that people don't usually uh, tackle or, or preach from, and, and we ask the question, why are they here, and, and the passage in particular that we're looking at, um, the, the verse in particular is that, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. This is one of the signs that accompany the death of Christ. Now, when Christopher Columbus was on his voyage to the New World, and they had been on the water many, many days, and uh, all they saw around them was the vast ocean, the, the crew began to be concerned and fail in their faith and their trust in Columbus, until one day, Columbus writes in his journal, as they were just losing hope, he says, they saw sandpipers, they saw green reeds floating in the water. They saw poles. They saw more cane. They saw one piece of wood that looked like it had been worked on with iron floating on the swells. They saw a small branch covered with berries. Everyone breathed fresh and rejoiced in these signs. Land was close. So the signs around us will often point to a greater reality that is outside of us. In the context of the passage of the crucifixion, Several important passages, supernatural, several important signs, supernatural signs happened during this time and his time on the cross. 
and, in, and at the moment at which he gave up his life. So we see, look, look at verse 50 with me. Jesus cried out and yielded up his spirit. He gave his life. This is part of the willingness of Christ to die for us. The willingness of Christ to give his life for those whom he loved. For those whom the Father were going to draw unto himself, he gave into his hand, never let them go no matter what the circumstances. And in the midst of of this punishment that he has faced, this uh, beating and the, the whipping and being placed on the cross... He screws up his strength, so to speak, and he rises up. Remember, crucifixion death was pretty much a death of suffocation because of the the place of the arms. And remember, the the guards come along after this, and they they want to speed the crucifixion, so they start to break the legs of the guys on the side of Jesus, but they come to him, and he's already given up his life for us. So he screws up all of his, his courage and, and, and all that is left within them, and he cries out, and he cries out for us. He cries out that he gives his life up for us and yields it into the Father's hand. So Jesus was in control of this. This was not done to him. This was not brought upon him. He is in control of every step, of every action, of every lash that hit his back. He was in control of and was done according to the Father's will. He commits himself back into the hands of the Heavenly Father. And Matthew is telling us that, that Jesus' manner of life, was, his manner of death was voluntary. He's telling you that Jesus had deliberately chosen to die as an act of love. And there were four signs that associated his death. Now, the darkness that came upon the land, uh, the torn curtain, the earthquake, and the tombs that were opened. Those were the four signs, and, and really we're just going to look at, at uh, three, uh, three of those. We won't deal with the darkness today. We'll just deal with um, these three. So he tells us, Matthew tells us, upon the death of Christ... In verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the veil of the temple separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And it was a a curtain about four inches thick. And uh, the author of Hebrews tells us three things about this. That it... The tearing of the curtain shows that the way into the presence of our Heavenly Father has now been opened to everyone. Before that, you could only enter, and you you and I could never enter the Holy of Holies. That was done by the chief priest one day out of the entire year. And remember, it was very structured and had to happen exactly in the right way. And if he, for some reason, made a mistake, uh, there was a rope that was tied around his leg, and there were bells on the end of his garments. And if the people outside the curtain stopped or no longer heard the bells, then that was a sign that the chief priest had done something wrong and the Lord had struck him dead and they were to pull him out by the rope that was tied to his leg. They could not go into the Holy of Holies themselves. That's where the presence of the Lord dwelt. Well, now the tearing of the curtain says anybody can go into the presence of the Lord now. Anybody can go right to the throne of grace. Secondly, it's a symbol of God's judgment. Judgment that he has left the temple, that he is no longer there, that that is no longer the way that you get to the Heavenly Father. That is no longer through the death of the blood of goats or the blood of lambs. That is no way that's, that is no longer the way that sin is atoned for. The atoning of sin is done through the work of Jesus Christ, and he has just given his life for us on the cross. Only the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ 
can wash away sins. The second sign which is laid out for us uh, in our passage is the earthquake. Uh, And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now this harkens back to the Old Testament and often earthquakes accompanied these big supernatural events. These big events, uh, supernatural earthquakes came and, and shook the land. And here at the death of Christ we see an earthquake as a sign that confirms who Jesus Christ is and what he was doing there on the cross. The world may have rejected Christ, but my Heavenly Father says, no, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, and as a sign of whom I am well pleased in, here is another one, an earthquake that shakes the ground. Now, this is something that uh, the Gentiles around the cross would have understood, because they were much more into these kind of signs, and remember the Romans... And their dreams, we looked at it previously in Pilate's wife's dream, they would get a dream or a portent of what, uh, what was to come and, and they would act upon those. And, and sometimes, as I, as I mentioned, uh, if, if the dream was bad enough that somebody's future was bad, the person would actually go and kill themselves rather than face the future that was laid out for them in their dream. So those Gentiles around the cross who were superstitious saw this darkening, saw the earthquake, they didn't see the veil being torn, but they they saw these two, and they understood exactly that this was something very, very out of the ordinary. In fact, the centurion says what? Truly this was the Son of God. So this whole complex uh, issue of signs are pointing us to who is Christ, and that is he is the Son of God, that his death is for our salvation. And if you're going to follow him, Uh, You have to put aside the old sacrificial system. No longer is the curtain there. It has been opened. You have to follow Christ. That's how you get to our Heavenly Father from now on. So let's just briefly cover those two. Now we get to the third one, the one that we're interested in the most today. Verse 52. And the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now, the phrase there, fallen asleep, that is used specifically and exclusively of believers in the first century. As it's laid out for us in scripture, we go to 1 Thessalonians as an example. It's just used in, in a variety of places for believers who have fallen asleep because their body has fallen asleep. Their body there lays in the grave. They are with the Lord, but their body awaits the return of the Lord. So that's how they have listed it, fallen asleep. So this this really, this little passage here, these two verses, um, the end of 52 and 53, that talk about these tombs opening. Now, this, this is not hyperbole. This is not... Uh, representative of something else. This is literally what it means and what it says, that the tombs were opened, the dead saints came out, they appeared to many within the city. Now, this is really a, a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament, a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. Do we have any report? Anything we can share? Okay. All right. Was your caregiver just going to take her to the hospital? Oh, in the ambulance. Okay. Thank you, guys. Appreciate that. 
Did everybody hear that? Just blood pressure probably dropped. Get some fluids at the hospital. That would be Miss Virginia, okay? Okay, so this is fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy out of Ezekiel. And we're going to turn there in just a moment to that, that wonderful passage in Ezekiel chapter 37. Um, well, let, let's go there now so your fingers are there. Um, now, when I say Ezekiel 37, some of you go, I know there's something important in Ezekiel 37. Uh, yes, that is one that, that um, when I, we talk about the dry bones and the resurrection of the dry bones in Ezekiel 37. Now, just imagine if you were there in Jerusalem at this time and the tombs opened and you saw these people that you knew had died. You went to their funeral. You put them in the, in the sepulcher there. They were dead and you saw them walking around the city. Probably would not be a comfort to you. But I doubt that this was meant to be a comfort to anyone. It is a sign, a confirming sign that this is the Son of God. It's a sign of God's judgment on the one hand, as we mentioned. It's a sign of what Jesus had accomplished in his death. It is a sign just as long, this is just like the supernatural darkness and the tearing of the curtain and the shaking of the ground. God is confirming for us that this is his son. He is who he said he was. He is who he claimed to be. And these signs confirm it. <coughs> so, as I said, we, we, we go to Ezekiel 37. And in the Old Testament, there are various prophecies about the future of God's people and about resurrection. And even though the Old Testament doesn't talk about resurrection as clearly as the New Testament, this portion in Ezekiel talks about it pretty clearly. So Ezekiel 37, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Remember, the people are in exile. They're out away from their home. Bad things have been happening to them. And this is the prophecy that comes from the Lord to the prophet Ezekiel. Chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about and behold there were very many on the surface of the valley and lo they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And What do you say to the Lord when he asks you a question? Well, Ezekiel does a pretty good job here. He says, O Lord, only you know. Only you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. And I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive. And you will know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel was given a specific, specific things to say. He says, uh, well, how, how do we raise dry bones? And so, well, Lord, only you know how to do it. And he says, speak to them. And he says, speak to them these words that I give to you. So speak to them God's word. Verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and beheld, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, 
prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones were dried up and our hope has perished. We were completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and cause you to come up out of the graves, my people. So God tells Israel exactly what he wants them to know. They are in a hopeless situation in their minds. They, they are just, and they basically abandon the Lord. So the Lord says, I'm going to give you back your land. I'm going to restore you to your city. I'm going to give you life again. And how does he do this? Now just think about this for a moment. He comes to Ezekiel and says, uh, he takes him to this valley and there's nothing but dry bones. Apparently there had been some battle there or something like that. But this dry bones is to represent as well the people of Israel. Because they are dry. They have abandoned the Lord. They have closed off to the, to the things of the Lord. And he says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, I don't know. It's up to you, Lord. And the Lord could have gone and they would have been alive. But he doesn't do that. He uses the proclamation of his word to raise the dry bones, to put flesh back on the dry bones here. He, he doesn't do that in an instant, but as the prophet speaks to them and speaks to them the very word of God, they are brought together. They are brought together. Now, remember when Jesus heard about the sickness of Lazarus and he said, oh, Lord, come quickly. He's dying. And what does Jesus do? He hangs out a little bit longer and delays. So by the time he gets there, Lazarus is dead. He's good and dead because it says four days in the grave. And what does Jesus do? Does he just go, oh, no big thing, and snap his finger and Lazarus comes out? Does he go through some special ceremony and, and some, some, something out of the ordinary? No, he does what? Lazarus, come forth. It is the word of God that raises the dead. The word of God that raises the dead. It is the power of Christ's word that raises the dead. The Lord tells Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones. And, and most of us would think, gee, Lord, really? <laughs> I mean, they're dead. And the bones are dry. The bones are dry. It's not as if... They, they're, they're only half dead or something like that. No, they are dead. They're long dead. There's nothing on them. No sinew, no flesh, just bones. He says, no, the bones are Israel. The bones are dried up and, and our hope is lost. That's what Israel thinks. And we're cut off from the Lord. But the Lord says, this is my covenant people. They have forgotten my promises. They have forgotten all the things that I said was true to them. But I am the Lord God and they are my people. And by my word, they shall live again. So to them, it seems hopeless, but God simply by the power of his word. So the spirit operates under the authority of God for the purpose of glorifying the Lord. By the authority of God, the breath enters the body and he gives them life. He 
gives them life. So God says to them that even if their bones, lying scattered throughout this valley, long dead, my word can raise you. My word can raise you. I'll bring my promises to bear. I'll fulfill every word that I ever made a promise to these people. This is what I will do. Okay. So with that in our mind, go back to Matthew 27. And this is what is happening in Matthew. Matthew is saying that the death of Christ is the event that brings about the reality that God had promised. Now, this is not the entirety of Israel coming back to Christ at this moment. It is a foretaste of the great day of resurrection that will come when the Lord returns. The great day the Lord had promised 600 years ago in Ezekiel Christ is giving a partial fulfillment of this at his crucifixion as the tombs open, as the dead who who didn't know Christ, but they were the faithful dead, are raised from their tombs. That's why Matthew tells us about the opening of the tombs because he's explaining the significance of Christ's death to us, that this is a foretaste of what will come in the future. Now, uh, in, in all the things that I read, in all the things that I studied, there is no better explanation I found about this passage and what it means. Because we can look at this and go, well, okay, what? should we all go hang out at Maple Hill and wait for the tombs to open? Okay, no, that's not what it means. But this is a foretaste and demonstrates the power of God's word to raise the dead. Now, in Ezekiel, it raised the physical dead. What does it do now? It raises the spiritual dead, the spiritually dead, those who are far from Christ. It is his word. It is his word that brings life. And it is not explained any better that I have found than, of course, in Charles Spurgeon. The graves were open and the dead revived. It is a great consequence of the death of Christ. Man is the only animal that cares about a grave. Some persons fret about how they shall be buried. That is the last concern that would ever cross my mind. I feel persuaded that people will bury me out of hatred or out of love, and especially out of love to themselves. We need not trouble about that. But man has often shown his pride by his tomb. He says, that's a strange thing. To garland the gallows is a novelty. I think not yet perpetrated. But to pile marble and choice statuary upon a tomb, what is it to adorn a gallows or to show man's great grandeur where his littleness is alone apparent? Dust and ashes and rottenness and putridity and then a statute and all manner of fine things to make you think that the creature that goes back to dust is, after all, a great one. Now, when Jesus died, sepulchers were laid bare and the dead were exposed. What does this mean? I think we have in the last miracle the history of a man. There is a man and he lies dead, corrupt, dead in trespasses and sins. But what a beautiful sepulcher he lies in. He is maybe a churchgoer, maybe a dissenter. Uh, He maybe he's a very moral person, a gentleman. He is all good. Oh, he is so good. Yet he has no divine grace in his heart, no Christ in his faith, no love to God. You see what a sepulcher he lies in? A dead soul in a gilded tomb. 
By his cross, our Lord splits this sepulcher and destroys it. What are our merits worth in the presence of Christ? The death of Christ is the death of self-righteousness. The death of Jesus' death is not needed if we can save ourselves. If we are so good that we do not want a Savior, why then did Jesus bleed his last upon the tree? The cross breaks up the sepulchers of hypocrisy and formalism and self-righteousness in which the spiritually dead are hidden away. After the sepulchers had been broken and the graves had been opened, what followed? Well, life was imparted. Many of the bodies of the saints which slept arose, they had turned to dust there in the tombs. But when you have a miracle, you might as well have a big miracle. And I wonder what people, when they can believe, why they can believe in one miracle, make it any more difficult to believe in any other miracle. One once introduces omnipotence and difficulties have ceased. So it is in this miracle. The bodies came together on a sudden, and and there they were, complete and ready for the rising. What a wonderful thing, the implantation of life. I will not speak of it in a dead man, but I will speak of it in a dead heart. Oh God, send your life into some dead heart at this moment while I speak. That which brings life into dead souls is the death of Jesus. While we behold the atonement and view our Lord bleeding in our place, the divine spirit works upon the man and life is breathed into him. He takes away the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh which palpitates with a new life. This is the work of the cross. It is by the death of our Lord that regeneration comes to men. There would be no new births if it were not for that one death. If he had not bowed his head, none of us could have lifted up our heads. If he had not there on the cross passed from among the living, we must remain with the dead all of our lives. Now pass on and you will see that those persons who receive life in due time left their graves. Well, of course they did. What living man would want to stay in his grave? And you, my dear hearers, if the Lord quickens your hearts, you will not stay in your graves. If you have been accustomed to sin, you will quit it. You will not feel any attachment to your sepulcher. If you have lived in ungodly company and found amusement in questionable places, you will not stay in your graves. You shall not have need to come after you to lead you away from your old associations. You will be eager to get rid of them. If any person here should be buried alive, and if they should be discovered in their coffin before they had breathed their last breath, I am sure that if the sod was lifted and the lid taken off, he would not need prayerful entreaties to come out of that grave. Far from it. Life loves not the prison of death. So may God grant that the dying Savior may fetch you out of the graves that you still live in. And if he now quickens you, surely you will jump from your grave of sin and into the arms of the living Savior. Which way did these people go after they had come out of their graves? We are told that they went into the holy city. He that has felt the power of the cross will long to join himself with God's people. He will wish to go up to God's house and have fellowship with the holy God. I should not expect that quickened ones would go anywhere else. Every creature goes to its own company, the beast to its lyre, the birds to its nest, and the restored and regenerated man makes his way to the holy city. Does not the cross draw us to the church of God? We're told that they went into the holy city and appeared unto many. That is, that some of them who had been raised from the dead, I do not doubt, appeared to their wives. 
What rapture as they saw again the beloved husband. It may be that some of them appeared to father and mother, and I doubt not that many a quickened mother or father would make that first appearance to their children. What does this teach us? But that if the Lord's grace should raise us from the dead, we must take care to show it. Let us appear unto many. Let the life that God has given us be manifest. Let us not hide it, but let us go to our former friends and make the realities of Christ plain to them. For his glory's sake, let us have our manifestation and appearance unto others. Spurgeon is clear here. He says, The word of Christ will raise you from the dead will raise you from the dead that your sin locks you into. If you are held captive by sin, if you do not know the things of Christ, then his word shall bring life to you. And if you have been raised from that life, you will hate that life and you will seek the things of God, just as the people who came out of those tombs in the first century went into the holy city and sought out fellowship with the body. This is what the word of God does to us. There's a question that we have. Well, why does the Lord include these opening tombs here? It is the fulfillment, partial fulfillment of a prophecy from the Old Testament. It is confirmation of what the Lord does. And it is a command to us of the power of Christ's word to raise the spiritually dead and give them new life that our lives might be lived for his glory and his alone. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, why would we want to stay in the midst of the things which are dead? The bodies that were raised and restored, they fled from their tombs and moved to the city. As far as we know, Lord, we have no other word about what happened to them after that. They went into the city. They were seen by many. Perhaps they lived out their lives, the rest of their lives, and died another natural death. We do not know. But we know they sought you. They fled from the death that held them before, and they sought the fellowship of Christ's church. Heavenly Father, might we put aside the things of spiritual death that perhaps we have always longed for and held on to. And maybe this is the first time that our eyes have been opened and we want to flee from that and we want to cling to the things of Christ. Or maybe we've been believers a long time, but we have held on to certain things of spiritual death. But the power of Christ, the power of Christ's word comes upon us and we must put them aside and come out from among that. That the the things of of sin would not be seen or known in our world, in our attitudes, in the things of our lives. The power of Christ's resurrection and the glory of our Heavenly Father, that would be preeminent in all that we do. Heavenly Father, fix our eyes upon the resurrected Christ, upon the life that he brings. We ask this in his name. Amen.